0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Let's Talk About It podcast show. I am your host, DJ, and over the next couple of months, I will be talking to many famous historians from around the area about local events that help shape the area that we live in. I want to thank the Fort Smith Museum of History for letting us record our show in their sound studio, and the museum is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and masks are optional. They are located at 320 Rogers Avenue in beautiful downtown Fort Smith, where you can visit them online at FortSmithMuseum.org. Our very first guest is a long-time friend of mine who I met back in 2013 when we recorded a video for the historic site that was uploaded to YouTube and can be found by searching for Execution Day in Fort Smith. We have fought together on many Civil War battlefields across Arkansas and Oklahoma and have squared off many times during our night court reenactments. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mr. Cody Faber. So, I want to welcome Cody to the podcast. First and foremost, we ended, We met up back in 2013 yeah, time frame, right. I yeah. think, the the video that we shot for the historic site, which <laughs> went to YouTube, was our first actual that, meeting. That's
1: right. That seems like a lifetime ago now. Uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, first time we, we had you do the park volunteering, we executed you.
0: Well, and a and, and, and good thing about that, that YouTube video is still out there yeah. on the internet somewhere and you can still find it. Yeah. But how did you get involved with the historic site?
1: Oh, man, you want to talk about a history lesson. I've been out here forever. So I grew up down in, in Hackett, but I went to Greenwood schools. And my mom used to bring me down here when I was a kid. I was a history nerd, even as a child, um, which I never thought I'd, being a job now working with the National Park Service, that would uh, pay me to do what I like, which is kind of fun. Um, but uh, I, I remember when I first started coming, one of the other guys that you might get to actually do the podcast with Tom Wing. Tom used to basically do what I do now, uh, which is run the volunteer program, the living history program and, and be a park ranger at this work site. And I remember I went down when I was a kid, I, I really liked history. I was ruined really into the Civil War starting by the second grade. And he was shooting the cannons. And I went down and saw him shooting. He didn't know me. I didn't know him at the time. And anyways, he, he was shooting the cannons and he was working at the university during the school year and then working at the in the summer, Well, I thought that was awesome, and he was even offering bonus points to his students. So I thought, man, I could do history and get paid for it. This is fantastic. I want to do this for a living. And so I started wanting to do secondary education and work and uh, teach history in high school. And then the university, led by Tom Wing, of all people, uh, had the degree in historical interpretation. And so I swapped out and, and swapped degrees and did that and then started volunteering with the Park Service here in Fort Smith, and then got a job for the summer, seasonal jobs, and then finished my Master's degree, and they offered me a permanent position, and the rest is history. And here you are. And here I we mean, are.
0: So, so what kind of time frame were we looking at? So when did you graduate, go to college? Uh, and then,
1: I started working here at the park in 2008, and I finished my undergraduate in 2009 and finished my Master's in 2011, and that's when I got on permanent, it was right after that.
0: So 2011, so what?
1: So i've been here 13 years 2021 right
0: now so 13 years so uh so you was you were only at the park a couple years before i came i started coming around because like i said i retired in 2012 i think i started getting into reenacting 2012 2013 Mm -hmm. doing cowboy western stuff and then it it slowly filtered over to the living history and then the civil war artillery and now it's a mixture of everything. Yeah, you yeah, do a little bit of all, all, of, all kind of, of it. Stuff, you but the, the, what I wanted to talk to you about today was everybody talks about Fort Smith and they think of Fort Smith, but how did Fort Smith, the actual fort, come about? Oh, yeah. And you know, you can if you ever go to the historic site, you know, you have the main camp or facility. But back to the southwest a little bit, it's the actual location of the first fort. Mm-hmm. Now, who was the people who came here, and why did they come here?
1: That's a good question. I mean, it's the that lays the foundation for really the next eighty years of our story, basically, in involving the federal government's involvement in federal Indian policy. Um, it is a complicated story. Uh, it is a nuanced one in the regards to the fact that it's not perfect. Uh, you know, as as, as and I know, we'll go on and talk here, but it's. It, 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 there's a lot of ups and downs. We have a lot of good and bad. You have some heroes. You have villains. There, there's a reason it's a national park site. Uh, there's there's a lot of good and bad. And, and it encompasses, you know, at the time, tens of thousands of human stories. And now if you involve the people who were affected by it you know, years later, whether it be members of the tribe or ancestors of those who served at the fort or fought in the Civil War or deputy marshals or even the, the criminals, I mean, you're looking at hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who now live in the states that are affected by these stories. So, I mean, you know, this is this is not just a local story. It's something that really pertains to a larger larger group uh, in the region. But if you want to understand how we got to the first fort, so most people can say, let's say we start December 17th, 1817, or excuse me, December 25th, 1817, that we have the rifle regiment arriving. And so these are the guys that are basically the the Special Forces, the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, the Sharpshooters of the War of 1812 for the United States. So you can say, well, they arrive in December 25th, 1817, and they start building the first Fort Smith. Well, there's a lot more to it than starting in 1817. If you want to understand how we got there, you have to go back even further. And you can really start in probably the mid-1700s by the 1760s um, with the Cherokee arriving in this area so the dominant tribe because like i said we involve federal Indian policy the dominant tribe in this area of the country is the osage so you have they are they're kind of the uh the lords of the, the the woodland plains in this area of of the of arkansas oklahoma missouri and kansas and they were the dominant tribe for a couple of reasons one namely because of where they were situated at in this portion of the country they had a lot of trade involvement with, with different governments, and that's not just the US government. That's involving the Spanish government, the French government, and then of course later the American government. But because of that, where they sat on the Arkansas River or the Missouri River, or their involvement even as far as north as St. Louis, they, they were allowed an enormous amount of trade goods, especially firearms, and so they dominated a lot of the tribes for, for about a half a century. Like I said, they were the, they were the tribe to fight in the Midwest region. So, they lived in this area of the country as far as Missouri and Arkansas and lived here. And kind of this, they were, they were a different type of tribe in regards to they lived and had set farms. They were agrarian in some nature. They actually had set homes where during the summertime they would go wage war. They, they were huge in the, the human slave trade, actually, um, to the other tribes that they fought. Uh, but they also went and hunted the buffalo and, and hunted like almost similar to a nomadic tribe. So, so they were kind of this hinterland between, you know, staying stationary and nomadic, and they're kind of this—they're—they're they're very interesting tribe. Anyway, I say that to say that they were the dominant tribe, and they had a monopoly in a lot of the trade in this area of the country until the Cherokee arrived. The, the Cherokees, very well armed as well. Uh, they, at that point, you know, many people when we have arrived at the park, they think, well, you know, where are they fighting? They're—they're they're all Native Americans. Well. They're completely different cultures. Um, they're, their religion's different. At this point, many of the Cherokee have adopted Christianity. They're farming. They're hunting. They know that there's a lot of money to be made in, in the, in the uh, trade goods of, of, of hides and furs and meat and things of that nature. Uh, and so as they're, they come in contact with the Cherokee, mostly portions of Arkansas, to begin with, they begin butting heads over over land rights, over hunting rights. Uh, and as that continues, it starts with the slow roar and then it, it goes on to almost being, I mean, full out conflict by the early 1800s, to where it is mass atrocities taking place on both sides.
0: So you got the Cherokee fight in the Osages.
1: Yes, uh, it's this is this is uh, like I said, this is very bad uh, as far as the fighting goes. To the point that entire groups of tribes or in, in, in major you know uh, say townships are being wiped out by each other. Uh, probably the most famous being. Uh, the, um, the Claremore Mounds incident which actually took place in 1817 right before the Rifle River got there so by 1803 of course uh, the United States has taken possession of this as far as on paper goes is Louisiana Purchase so they've kind of inherited this fight um, so they, they are, are petitioned by some of the tribal members that they should send some type of force out here to stop this fighting and, and the, some of the Indian agents are doing the same thing like you've got to calm this down this is going to stop so that, they, the US government is about to get involved though, with the war of 1812. So they're fighting internationally, so they've got you know they got other stuff to take care of. So that ends in 1815. So it's not until 1817 finally that the US military finally sends anyones out here to actually calm this down.
0: So that they come out of, where did they come out Little Rock?
1: Uh, now, that's a good question. Most of the guys with the rifle regiment that are signed up, and I'll talk about them here in a second who, like who they were. Uh, in particular, but most of them are recruited out of South Carolina, uh, and this is an interesting group of guys. Most of them, if you look at the rosters, are first-generation Americans. You have Prussians on that list, lots of English, lots of Irish, uh, the French. You have a an enormous amount of languages that would be spoken, including free blacks. Uh, there was four free blacks that were in the group. Uh, probably the most well-known uh, that, that some other folks have talked about as being Peter Calder, um, but. Uh, at this point in American history, they're still integrating the troops, which is interesting, uh, because that's going to stop in the next couple decades. You're not going to see that any longer. By the Mexican War in the 1840s, that's that's, ended, that's done. Um, so this is one of the last times in American military history for the 19th century, in a way, you're going to see integrated troops. Uh, that You don't see that again until the Korean War.
0: Yeah, because I've noticed some of the pictures at the historic site, you see them arriving on a boat, and I want to say there's 15, 12 to 15 gentlemen on the boat coming up to the landing
1: yeah. yeah so that's so you mentioned little rock uh they were sent up actually to st louis for a short time went up the mississippi or down the mississippi and then up the arkansas on keel boats you know now if you visit the arkansas river it's it's quite deep you know there you can get major boats up the arkansas river yeah. up to this point at that time one of the reasons the spot for fort smith itself was chosen because this is one of the highest points up in the arkansas you could still river travel if you look at some of the paintings from the time, and descriptions from the time, there's an enormous amount of sandbars, which is a reason nowadays, if you visit, you're probably gonna see somebody, uh, a, a dredge out there on the Arkansas River dredging for sand. Um, and which is one of the reasons it's still, it's so deep right now. Uh, but at the time, uh, again, for river travel, it's one of the highest points up on the river. It's also at the conflux of the Podo and the Arkansas River they come at. And so the rifle regiment's job to, namely, number one was to keep the peace between the tribal members. But they also had to be able to survive. You think when they showed up here, they had nothing here. There was no fort, there was nothing, there was no buildings, there was nothing here. So they had to basically build a whole new world here for themselves. Now, not that there weren't, it's a misnomer to think that it was completely unsettled. I mean, the tribes were here. The tribes, you know, the Osage and the Cherokee both had large settlements, and they were very well established in this area. Uh, but as far as the U.S. government goes, there was nothing
0: here. So when they arrived, what do you th- estimate the population of Fort Smith was?
1: Zero when they first got here. So uh,
0: there was nobody here except for that? Except for the tribes. The tribes.
1: Uh, yeah, there was no U.S., um, you know, uh, say, American citizens at okay. this point living on at the point of Fort Smith. So they sent an advance party of several men, uh, including Peter Calder, uh, who actually ends up on the point and picks helps pick the site. Uh, they, they establish, uh, kind of pick the spot for this. Um, uh, Steve H. Long was one of the guys who actually came up the boat with them. Uh, and helped pick this and kind of design what the fort itself was going to look like. Uh, and then the rest of the men came up, and it took them several months to get all the way up here. So there's a reason, again, they don't arrive until December of 1817. Uh, they'd left several months for that, but they're pulling up the Arkansas River. <laughs> they're, they're going yeah. against the current. And, and like I said, this is an interesting group of guys. Not only their, their makeup of where they had come from, uh, but also the fact that you know of who they are like I said they're they're the sharpshooters of the, the rifle regiment if you see pictures of them they have their large Shaco hats on very European looking hats but their clothing is green frock coats very American uh, camouflage almost if you
0: will yeah because um, me and another reenactor
1: that's right you've done stuff put the
0: uniforms like on real heavy yes. heavy heavy yes. And and you're talking of weapons. You're talking still flintlocks. Yes, very much so. You know, this not your not your cap and ball percussion. You're talking flintlocks right. and loading procedure and everything yes. like that. Th-
1: these guys were, like I said, the, the sharpshoes and the snipers uh, for the U.S. military at the time. So their uniforms were different compared to say like the blue or red, white, and blue of certain infantry units. Yeah. Uh, these guys were riflemen. So even like they were given green coats to be more camouflage. If they'd been in combat, you wouldn't have seen them lined up in a big giant line. You'd have no. seen them hidden in the trees, picking off officers and NCOs and certain things of that nature. Uh, and the weapons they were given were specialized. They were given 1803 Harper's Ferries rifles, uh, which they had to qualify with and be accurate marksmen with those rifles, And um, which is a, a testament to the fact that, you know, of how good they are with these guns. But you'd imagine hunting at the time compared to a modern infantryman at the time that has a, a smoothbore weapon that may not be accurate at very long distances where these guns were accurate. So they were, like I said, they had to they had to survive. So let's say they had to build a fort, they had to build roads, they had to keep an eye on the, the warring tribes, but they also had to hunt for themselves and farm for themselves. They were up on the ridge overlooking the, the, the river there for an entire year before they were ever paid or resupplied. So you can imagine the 50-some-odd guys that, that, that drops off at the time um, that, that arrives there. Let's say we take 50 people modern, even 50 military men, yeah. and we drop them off. Say, we're going to drop you off uh, you know, hundreds of miles from the closest military base or modern settlement uh, as far as trade goods go, and you're going to have to live there, and you're going to have to survive and feed yourselves, make sure your clothing and everything you have is in good order, and I'm going to give you a bunch of flintlocks. <laughs> I mean, good grief! Yeah, uh, these guys were, and and they weren't alone as far as just the men. They had women with them as well. There was four female laundresses that came with them. So this isn't just a guy's story for all the ladies that'll be listening to this. Um, the the we had four female laundresses that came with them, and the laundresses. What's kind of neat about them is they were the first women laundresses were on the U.S. rosters for the U.S. military. They 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 got supplies from the U.S. military. Uh, they were there to take care of the clothing. And you may think, well, that's all. Well. Man, if that's a lot to take care of.
0: Well, it's um, a lot to take care of, and I'm sure they did a lot of cooking, a lot of cleaning. Oh, of course. While um, the men were out you hunting you. and exploring. And, 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 r- r- and
1: building and everything else. and I mean, if you've walked around hunting for a day, you know how fast modern clothes get tore up. Oh, yeah. Uh, so imagine these guys, you know, starting fires, cooking, chopping wood, hunting, going through brambles and thick weeds and everything else, and how much their clothes are going to have fast. Uh, you know, um, and, and the hygienic safety issues of that. You want to stay clean, not just because it smells nice, because it's a safety issue. I don't want to get sick. Um, and so they, these ladies had to take care of that. And, and it wasn't uncommon for female laundresses to marry into, you know, the military. And that was very common. In fact, the the, the best explanation I can have of how uh, how tough these ladies were that not only they are hundreds of miles from their home, most of them were recruited out of, out of St. Louis, so they're a long ways away from home. Uh, the first, uh, uh, one of the, we believe it to be Susan Loving, one of the laundresses that married one of the soldiers here has a baby in 1819 and the officer at the, of the day recorded, recorded the baby being born and the weight and recorded as 12 pounds. <laughs> so if that doesn't tell you how tough this lady is, I have two kids and both my kids weighed six pounds each and uh, that was a pretty normal standard little girl. Uh, so I can't imagine having a 12 pound baby. Uh, that, that's the lady's probably tougher than anybody at that point. So
0: your first group had 50 people, yep. men and then 46, and, the mm-hmm. and then the ladies. Okay, at what point did they get reinforcements or did more people come?
1: That's You're gonna have some of them come up the river the next following following years. However, they're not there the entire time. So kind of skipping ahead just a little bit. The, fort, the first Fort Smith stays from 1817 until 1824. Uh, by 1822, though, the 7th Infantry is going to take over this, this spot. The Rifle Regiment, they had signed up for their terms of enlistment during the, during the war. Yeah. And so if that points up, some of them uh, invest and stay in the military. A lot of the guys take their land grants and go find it and go leave the U.S. military. Some, some of them come back, including, I mentioned again, Peter Calder. Uh, his land grant that he got in northern Arkansas wasn't too hot. He comes back and, and joins up with the U.S. military again. But the 7th Infantry, the Cotton Balers, uh, they join up and they stay here, and, and that's when you have the largest group of troops here, as many as a couple hundred. Now, they are not built for that. This fort, uh, if, if, if you're interested and see pictures of it, is not a very large Military garrison. This is a wood palisade fort, uh, two block houses on either end. Uh, it was not finished. All four walls were not finished until 1824, until the military was just about to leave. Um, and, and, again, they had a major job to take care of. I mean, again, besides the fact they had to survive, besides the fact that they're a long ways away from home, that these guys have to take care of the warring tribal members. I mean, they, they are walking into a war zone. I mean, if you look at the Clearmore Mounds incidents where the Cherokees had attacked an Osage village, you're looking at 80 dead women and children and older folks. I mean, it is nasty. This well, is not clean fighting. This yeah, is nasty fighting. And the
0: Cherokee had a bad reputation of not taking prisoners. That, you know, in the, in the book Empire of the Sun, all the stories that came out of Texas were just horrendous. Yeah, I mean— they would just go in and take over a house and wouldn't take any prisoners, would take women and children, but no men. Yeah. You know, that book right there opened up a lot of people's eyes on the Cherokee Nation yeah, there's, and there's, what happened to it and how it progressed from the start all the way up until there were just a, a couple hundred. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah.
1: This is, it is a, uh, like I said, the, the fighting, and not to say the Osage didn't retaliate in certain things, the closest... The closest, and speaking of that, that kind of jumps back to the Osage. The closest that the Osage came uh, to, say, attacking the fort, and the first fort never came under attack, thankfully. Um, the In 1821, not too long after that baby was born, Susan Loving, uh, the, uh, a large group of Osage, probably estimates four to 600 is the numbers I've always seen, uh, probably closer to four, uh, shows up across the river, and they submit a small delegation in Uh, uh, probably the war captain if you look at the you know the idea of of chiefs and about who been in charge uh you know each tribe has different you know government styles and the osage at the time would run you had hospitality chiefs that stayed in the camp and would talk to people who meet and greet you know when they, they they visited compared to captains and and those who would go out on warring parties and hunting parties when they come back in they're no longer in charge it was a temporary promotion if you will And so the guy, it's kind of a a rough translation, a guy named Mad Buffalo or Angry Buffalo, depending on who you go with. Um, He arrives with his delegation of war captains, and that's just exactly what they were, kind of his lieutenants. And he arrives in the fort and demands gunpowder and and things of that nature and says, well, they're going to go hunting out west. And what are you doing with 400 guys across the river? Now, this is in just about the spring summertime here. This is, they're about to leave. They know that they're about to leave their winter camps and go hunt, which leaves most of their camps defenseless. And they know that the Cherokee know that. And so their their argument was they never intended attacking the U.S. military here, that their their idea was a show of force because they knew it would get back to the Cherokee that, hey, the Osage and this area of the country are still a force we reckon with. Leave our people alone while we're gone. And so, of course, the commanding officer sent him away. No, we're not going to give you anything. And they started. You know, making rafts, acting like they're going to attack the fort. The military rolls out the artillery and basically says, "Come on, if you're coming, let's go." Yeah. And they said, "Well, maybe not a good idea." They then went down the river and found some uh, some Delaware hunters and I believe some Quapaw. I may mean, I may be wrong. If I am, I'll, I'll correct myself later. But they they killed at least one of the Delaware. They they were they were in a very serious mood at that point. Uh, so it was they they were mad about it. And but like I said, they never they never attacked the fort. And there's a lot of questions about why. I mean, the Osage had thousands in the local area. I mean, like I said, they were the dominant tribe for this area of the country. Why did they never fight against the U.S. government? Because it was fully expected to. I mean, there was there was many who feared that and that fighting from that could spill back over into Arkansas. Why didn't they? Well, my, my theory and my idea of it is that, again, the Osage had worked with federal governments for a century. They'd worked with the French. They'd worked with the Spanish. And now the U.S. government, this is... They, it was a major monopoly on trade in this area of the country. Why would they bite the hands that fed them kind of thing? So they had, they, they, I think they believe in the system to a point, or some of them might have. And, of course, there's different groups inside the tribe. Uh, you know, there's, there's the southern uh, Osage and the Arkansas Osage. There's the northern Osage. Um, but so they, like I said, never comes under attack. So by 1824, Fort Smith had pretty much done its job, and they were going to abandon the first Fort Smith. And they go build Fort Gibson, which is now a state park site over in Oklahoma. And they, they and one of the reasons they established that site is it's near a large settlement of Osage. They want to continue their presence there with the Osage.
0: Yeah, because we've done some drill weekends with the Twenty Six Texas dismounting. Yeah. And we've actually camped and stayed in the barracks of Fort Gibson. Yeah,
1: it's a really neat site. Uh, if anybody that hasn't gone, it is a magnificent park to go visit.
0: And, and the thing about Fort Gibson, you have the actual Fort Gibson site, but then up on the hill you have the bakery and if I'm not mistaken, twice a year, they actually bake bread yeah. and do a live demonstration yeah. and it's really neat. Yeah, it,
1: it is, it's 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 similar in some regards to what the first Fort Smith looked like, block houses and all. Uh, so if you want an idea of what the first Fort Smith might have looked like similar to anyways, uh, they have, I mean, they, they've built back almost the entire Fort on Wood, it's, it's a great site. Um, but yeah, they, they they leave Fort Smith in 1824, and you only have a small military presence here following that uh, up until the, the late 1830s when the second Fort Smith is built. And and really, what happens in those waning years there, kind of jumping ahead to 1830, you have the Indian Removal Act. Now that's the forced removal process under Andrew Jackson. Now now we what typically people would call the Trail Tears, uh, a very difficult and Horrendous time of American history.
0: Yeah, the Trail of Tears. If you look at it, the Trail of Tears pretty much wiped out. I would say seventy-five to eighty percent of the Native Americans in the United States. There was, in it, the Southeast.
1: It, yeah, it's it, they. They certainly moved them. Um, I mean, if you look at the population movement. Uh, there, there's groups of tribes that stayed behind. And, and, of course, different tribes have different stories. I mean, yeah. you know, what happened to the Cherokee and the Choctaw compared to the Chickasaw or the or the, or the Muskogee are different. Uh, say, look at the Seminole, for example. The Seminole's out of Florida. Uh, the Seminole fought three consecutive wars against the U.S. government, which ended up being the most expensive wars the U.S. government ever fought against any native tribe, and they never got them all out of, out of the Glades. Uh And you want to talk about some brutal, nasty fighting, and they connected to Fort Smith in regards to some of the boats uh, came right by Fort Smith here uh, yeah. in their removal process. And and they and and again they didn't actually march them. Like their trail is the waterways. And a lot of people when they visit Fort Smith and they visit our site, people say, Well, I want to see the trail. Where's the trail at? I'm expecting it to be like a physical <laughs> yeah. like you know, mud, you know, uh, wood, or like an earthen trail, where as the trail for us is the river. Many tribes would then hit the Mississippi, then come up to the Arkansas, save all but hundreds of miles of walking, and then go right by Fort Smith. Um, now, uh, I'll come back to that in a minute uh, because that's going to kind of go into the second portion of the second Fort Smith being built. But in the meantime, there are still small numbers of troops that are stationed at the first Fort Smith. That's really beginning the government's war on alcohol. That's really oh, going to yeah. continue for the next century. And the government at this point, and like I said, through almost pretty much all the 19th century, the government's going to be waging a war on legal alcohol sales like the government's waging a war on drugs now, and probably just about as successful, <laughs> uh, which means it wasn't. Uh, but at the same time, uh, one of the interesting stories to take place in the early 1830s, uh, I believe this is 1831, I believe. I may be wrong. It may be 32, uh, but uh, let's say 1830s in case I'm wrong, uh, was the there were several buildings being built right on the Arkansas Indian Territory line uh, which is now all in Arkansas now uh, which is close to Bell Point the first fort site and several of these houses were taverns the front door was in Arkansas the back door was Indian Territory and they were kind of it was a loophole to where they could you know were they really transporting alcohol well they're kind of already here and the US government basically the military is at the time saying hey does it, is anybody else seeing this? You can't do this. And so they got in arguments, and there was only a small group of troops here, and l- listen, there's, there's barely anything to do in this part of the country for the troops. And so what do you think they did? Well, they visited the taverns themselves, and they're getting drunk. And so uh, Captain Stewart, they're one of the guys that was uh, the commanding officer here, uh, was went down to one of the local bars where apparently some of his men were getting drunk on duty. Uh, you're in the military; can't do that. That's can't a, do that. That's a big no. Well, not supposed to. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, neither <laughs> confirm or deny if that ever took place. Uh But but he went down to there was an establishment there called the, the the Bigelow Brothers and they had a small tavern there, and he went over and basically chewed them out, saying, "You guys can't do this. You can't be selling alcohol to my men while they're on duty. Big no no." And so they got in a big argument with him and ended up fighting him and beating him up there in their establishment good times uh well they they sent him back all beat up to the fort and apparently in the nights at some point uh some of the men defending i guess their officer rolls the six pound artillery piece out of the fort down the ridge to within they said 10 paces uh however far you want to distance that off so within say 20 30 feet of the front door of the Bigelow Brothers and <laughs> fired a live round that saw it fall around through the, through the building. Uh, it didn't kill anybody, thankfully. It bounced around in there. Uh, and they came out, you know, so they saw the soldiers. Soldiers yelled at them, blah, whatever, and they ran off back and forth leaving the cannon there. And so the next morning they come to complain to the U.S. military and they fired a round through their building. And who they have to complain to but Captain Stewart, the guy they just beat up. And, the, and, the, and the, <laughs> it says, basically, he said, well, you know, uh, there's nothing I can do about it. These guys aren't here. Uh, they must have been drunk on your wares. Uh, so, and, and no no one was punished for it. So, funny, kind of a funny story is, here's the first involvement really between the U.S. government and the city of Fort Smith, and it involves cannon fire. A cannon fire and a liquor store. There you or go. Or a, a drinking there establishment. That's not some Arkansas storytelling. I don't know <laughs> what it is. Uh, I can say that because I'm from here. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, now, so, so that that gets the military back here. So they never really leave. They're kind of in a small presence over here, kind of back and forth uh, throughout the years. But that really picks back up uh, in the mid in the late eighteen thirties as the tribes are being removed. And, and again, depending on which tribe you want to go with, and that can be a whole other. Podcast, you want it to be of oh, the, yeah. the tribes themselves and their stories individually, because they they each deserve their own storyline of being told. Uh, and I and, I'm, and I, I feel bad. I'm kind of loosely covering. It's called the Trail of Tears removal process, but but again, that's that's a whole hundred different stories we go into. Uh, so as the tribes are being removed this area, the U.S. government's wanting a new fort somewhere in this region to act as a receiving point for some of the tribes and also act as kind of a mother post for the new forts that are being built uh, out west in Indian Territory, southern Kansas, northern Texas, uh, but, but also uh, to, to be a large military presence area mostly involving the tribes. So at that point uh, you have uh, um, John Rogers, who's one of the local citizens, he has some acreage here he wishes to sell, and he buys a, a small portion of what he's going to sell later to the U.S. military um, as the fort. Saying, "Hey, listen, you got a town here. You've already had a military presence here. I'll sell you this that I paid five hundred dollars for, and uh, I'll give it to you the low, low price of fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> so, so <laughs> immediate they, markup. Yeah, just a slight one. So, so he he sells the U.S. government. They pick this spot." And they build a second fort smith which if, if if you look at the diagrams of the first fort smith i mean wooden palisade very small compared to the second fort smith which is a massive military garrison it is it is huge compared to the first Fort Smith. Uh, and they begin building that in the first building being constructed in 1838 uh, so which is now if you come visit us is our oldest standing building is still here it's the commissary building uh it's a, it's a large rock building and if you visit there now, you're going to see that the rock walls are, you know, almost two and a half, three foot thick. On the
0: yeah, bottom. really, really thick.
1: You, and, and it's interesting, you visit there now, like it's cold this morning, we're filming this, on, or recording this on a cold morning, it was in the 30s this morning, even below freezing. You go in there now, it's almost a little warm in the building, it holds heat in there very well. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it was meant uh, to to fight cannons, it was started as a cannon bastion to fight artillery. And they said, no, we need a place to store our supplies first, and so they ended up building as a commissary. Uh, and they kept it as that. Which is for those who don't know what the commissary means, it's it's basically a, a storehouse for food and things of that nature for the military. Yeah,
0: for anything uh, you might uh, need. Any
1: any any like they had a quartermaster building later, which seemed to be more for the clothing items, leather gear, cartridge boxes, you know, shoes and that yeah. nature. But the commissary is mostly food uh, and, and and things of that. And so the and uh, which includes whiskey. The guys are getting whiskey rations every day, uh, which some of them saved that up. Uh, vinegars being issued out to help with vitamin C. Uh, you got corn, you know, coffee, everything else you could possibly think. So you
0: pretty that. much have it would be a, basically a grocery store. Pretty
1: much, yes, for the military. And right.
0: your quartermaster would hold everything for yes, the military. That's right, for and, the clothes. And you know. it's funny on military posts, modern day, the military grocery store is referred to as a commissary. Yes, right.
1: The word hasn't changed. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, it's uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the modern military commissary is better than the one they had at the time, uh, and the food's a little better uh, compared to hardtack, hard uh, and, and uh, salt pork, um, which is pretty rough, re- pretty rough fare. Uh, but these the, that that building, like I said, is still standing. It's probably one of the most important buildings we have here because that's really going to lay the groundwork for for the rest of the fort being built and, and the usefulness of it for long term. Because again, compared to say the first Fort Smith, which is wooden, well, that's going to you know, I mean, leave a piece of wood outside and see what happens yeah. after a while. It's going to break down. Well, this is rock. And so this fort is, quite, like I said, quite a bit larger. You have the quartermaster building, the commissary building. Uh, you have stables built. You have two officers' barracks built. You have a uh, enlisted men's barracks built. Uh, you have a powder magazine. And so only one corner, there's five corners, only two of the corners end up being cannon bastions, which, oddly enough, end up facing the city which I find ironic. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the makeup of this was odd. Now, they the first one that started to build, I mean, rock cutting for the for the rock that's going to be build the wall, which you have a nine and twelve foot rock wall uh, on the tallest side going down to six feet on the Garrison Avenue side. Uh, it, that rock cutting is a is not something anybody can do. This is well, specialized no. work. This yeah, skilled labor. You
0: would bring in masons to Get do back, all your rock work. So, and they work.
1: did. They actually hired men out of Maine. To come in and do rock work and they got the rocks mostly out of the, by the first fort site. So if you would visited the fort at the time, it would be almost a bluff where the the ground would go all the way to the river and kind of drop off. Now if you go there now, you're gonna see the the the, the river just kind of it kind of this beautiful rolling little hill down. Well, that's because they cored all the rock out of it. <laughs> uh, so that's where all that went, um, and which built the second fort. Now. Again, skilled labor, they're building this rock wall, and that costs a lot of t- money. It took a lot of time. I mean, that's 1838, the first building's built. Uh, Fort Smith is pretty much, for the most part, constructed by 1846. Uh, so, so a lot's taking place between that and, and, uh, and before that, and, a lot of, and again, the tribes are coming in. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot internationally going on. By 1846, the Mexican War begins and that's going to start a whole new chapter really relay for a lot of the divisiveness that's going to take place in the country uh, or well uh, throw gasoline on the fire if you will maybe a better way of putting it uh, for what's going to take place with states uh, coming in now so fort smith comes in pretty much completed just in time for the mexican war so 46 to 48 the mexican war takes place uh, and fort smith's going to be a big jumping off point for the troops that are heading South to go fight in Texas, and for a short time, actually some Arkansas militias actually stationed here while the the main regulars go down to fight. You know, with with Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott and those expeditions. Now, uh, speaking of Zachary Taylor, uh, he's stationed here right before the war. Uh, Zachary Taylor, of course, uh, one of the president of the United States. Um, he's stationed here, and one of his quotes was, "He's never seen a worse expenditure of government funds. He thought Fort Smith was a terrible <laughs> idea." Um, uh, decent placement perhaps but the amount of money and time this was a supply depot but if you look at the construction of it it's closer to a coastal defense fort than it is an inland supply depot why do you need them so much money they sunk about three hundred thousand dollars or third time's money into it the time is all over with so major major money and basically what happens is at this point it's too large to fail uh, we they've got too much invested too into betcha. it to pull a the plug on it. They've got to argue that we've got this much money, we have to use this. Yeah. Um, so so he, of course, Mexican War goes very well for the United States government. Uh, the, uh, when, when it's over, you've got parts of California, um, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, obviously are now in the United States military hands, or United States government hands um, as part of the United States. Now, uh, that's going to open up the ball for states' issues coming in, the balance between slave and free states, which is going to open up a whole huge argument and really, I think, speed up what's going to take place in the following years of in the Civil War. However, um, Zachary Taylor comes back, runs as a Whig, uh, wins president of the United States. He's a war hero. Uh, Probably, possibly, a better soldier than he was a, a politician, but that's a whole other story. So he comes back in uh, and one of his first jobs and decisions is to shut Fort Smith down. Thought it was a huge waste of money. He's like, hey, "I'm president now. Shut Fort We're Smith down." We're going to shut it down. So he stops it, and uh, and they start sending people out and start shifting supplies around. Um, I hate to say it, but luckily for those of us who are park rangers employed there now, uh, he dies about a year into office, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right at the fourth um, of July in 1850, and he it starts Fort Smith back up after he passes. Uh, they uh, the War Department is kind of requested to open it back up by several different people, including some people in the city. And it's opened back up, and they continue to use it. Um, Now, jumping back to 1849, though, California is now part of the United States. Well, they find gold uh, over in Sutter's Mill. So in the spring of 1850, everybody's got gold fever, and Arkansas is not out of that. So they actually start sending out, for the next decade, they send out uh, wagon trains and immigrants heading west to the California gold fields and they get military escorts out of Fort Smith the entire way, which is odd. I don't know of hardly any other place that got that. The, the first group left out in, in the spring of 1850, and it was led and precipitated just a couple days before that by a small group of topographical engineers and dragoons that were led by a guy named Randolph Marcy, who's basically mapping a route that way that's going to go to Santa Fe and then up to California. And the guy that went with him was a guy named John Buford, uh, which, if for the Civil War guys out there, if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, uh, uh, Sam Elliott played him in the movie uh, Gettysburg and stops Lee in the first day at Seminary Ridge. And, um, and he was a young dragoon lieutenant stationed here for a short time. And, anyways, he leads that group out. Uh, but, like I said, they, they send thousands, I think uh, probably around 5,000 folks that ended up out in California through Fort Smith, which is a lot. That's a big chunk of folks that leaves mm-hmm. out of one small quote unquote fort out of Arkansas. And getting military escorts the entire way—that's
0: yeah, impressive. the military escorts. That's a big thing because you don't you hear about people going out west, but you never hear about the ones going with the military escorts. That's right. You always hear about them just trekking out. That's right by themselves.
1: And and because of that, you end up with a lot less loss of life, and they bragged about that. Uh, Marcy, in his book, if uh, he wrote a book called The Pre-Traveler, uh, he was the and engineer. Remember, he um, uh, and if the book Pre-Traveler, it's. Uh, most of us will be familiar with those little yellow books that they sell like idiots' guides to yeah. or whatever. Basically, it was an idiot's guide traveling the West, uh, and, it's, and it has everything in there uh, about horses, how to choose horses, tack, what type of wagons, what tribes you'll meet on the way, um, you know where you should leave from, different routes, water stuff. And he says in his book, the best place to leave from if you're going to go to California goldfields is out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, take that, Independence. Um, well, but, you know, they
0: leave out of Fort Smith, but what's their next stop? I mean, what's – because you got Fort Gibson pretty close, maybe right, an hour way back, right. drive a car now. But what's out past Fort Gibson?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, one of the things – there were a lot of different tribes that you would meet on the way, and that's actually a plus. Um, one yeah. of the routes that – one of the reasons that the southern route, and including through going through Indian Territory, was a plus, was a little sooner spring. You get to leave a little earlier in the year, so there's better grass out there. Plus, the tribes that are out there, I mean, again, and I'll probably hit on this here in a bit too, but the idea that this was the Wild West and is completely unsettled is, again, a misnomer. Um, the idea that the tribes didn't have established court systems, laws, police forces, settlements, homes, towns, uh, you know, the, the idea that this was just willy-nilly, everything's a mess out there is not true. And so they, they, there would have been towns they would have hit along the way. And they could have said, well, hey, you know, I mean, imagine if I go through hundreds of miles of of territory that's that's you know uh inhabited by um the the, the tribes that have places where i can trade get new horses get food that's hundreds of miles of land that i don't have to worry about yeah and so compared to some spots in different parts of the country that traveling through that that may be more open that because of the removal process you have established communities there um kind of a, a sad you know turn of events there but but again, uh, it laid the groundwork for for a really good trip for some heading out west. Um, but but also Arkansas as a state at that time is really booming. Uh, you know the the, uh, the the state of Arkansas was doing pretty well. Um, uh, that's going to all change though, of course, by the 1860s. Um, now. And if we want to go into that, that's something you know, how, well, uh, how we go into the Civil War. There may be a whole other we could touch on it just the whole Civil War. Well,
0: we could touch slightly on the Civil War, talk about uh,
1: so. So, let's jump into that just real quick. So, as far as Arkansas goes, Arkansas, uh, and, and I think everybody knows Arkansas, of course, secedes uh, and is uh, um, one of the last states actually to secede and join the Confederacy. But to get into that, um, the population of Arkansas at that time was not large compared to, say, the other states. At the time um, As far as slaves go I believe The 1860 census Says there's like Right around 110,000 slaves are uh, in Arkansas That's point, That's like 2% of the National population And the reason I bring that up Is Arkansas Was not a Not as Hardcore Pro-secession As some Other states uh, because if you look at where the the large plantations, a large population of slaves were, they're mostly on the eastern part of the state by the Mississippi River. Yeah. Um, whereas Northwest Arkansas, I mean, we're up here. This is not cotton country.
0: No, we're up in the hills. You yeah, know, you're talking about the Boston Mountains. You're talking about that area. That's we're right. We're in the hills. I mean, we're not raising a lot of crops no, in this area.
1: In the, not, not in this area. And, and if—
0: if you raise crops, it's along the Arkansas River mm-hmm. and, and it's little outlying creeks That's and right. areas.
1: You, you would have seen more slaves in this area down here in the Ruhr Valley than you would have seen in Arkansas. Because yeah. again, there's more crops and, and large plantations, large fields, large farms. And so the state was very hotly divided. Um, you think about, I mean, South Carolina secedes in December of 1860. Uh, it's not until May that Arkansas secedes and it's not until may you know it's not that's that, that's almost a month after fort sumter's fired upon me. yeah so uh, so that's a you know there's a big gap between the first and they actually had a the first secession convention was in february and they voted it down the state was like we don't have anything to do with this
0: yeah they wanted out of it because it was it almost seemed like the the secession was east coast yes that's right everything you know let those guys do their thing we're here we're fine right Leave us alone. No, we're right. not. Don't mess with us. We don't mess with you. Yes. Kind of mentality. The,
1: now there were still folks who were very pro-secession and wanted to get it going. In February, of February right after that, you still have the the Little Rock Arsenal technically being seized by pro-Confederate militia, and so they're 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 now holding a large collection of arms, equipment, things of that nature, um, out of the out of out of Little Rock Arsenal. Now. Uh, the really thing that speeds it up, two big things, is of course Fort Sumter being fired upon in April, and the calling for volunteers by Abraham Lincoln, which put a was a stick in the craw of a lot of folks, you know, that were trying to argue said, hey, you know, here he's calling for us to join in to put down you yeah. know, our other states, which you know, there's a whole debate there of you know the states issues and things of that nature, uh, but he ends up. Um, uh, calling for volunteers, that, that was one of the reasons a lot of folks said, well, that's it. So uh, it's not by by May they went ahead and had a second convention, and they vote for secession with only one holdout uh, on that vote. Now, uh, Fort Smith comes in this. By, 18, uh, by April of 1860, April 23rd, 1861, uh, the uh, rector and some of the guys that were down in um, uh, Little Rock had come up and basically said that um, that was the governor. Um, uh, I just want to blanket his name. Solon Borland, uh, he was one of the uh, the senators, had basically said, hey, we're going to get some troops. Remember, they already had all those guns and cannons and everything else they got from Lower Arsenal. and we're going to take Fort Smith. Fort Smith's the largest fort in Arkansas. So we're going to take it. So they came up the river, about 300 guys. The Fort Smith Expedition is what it's commonly called. Uh, and they come up the river. They show up. No one's here, and they capture Fort Smith. And the reason there's no one here is you have Samuel Sturgis, who was the commanding officer here. Uh, Sturgis, South Dakota's named after him, and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so Sturgis uh, is, has companies D and E of the First United States Cavalry, and he is, knows there's no way he can hold this. And he comments that the, in a moment's notice, he's afraid that the local area is going to rise up against him and fight him. So he knows there's no way he can hold this territory. Well,
0: and and you have to look at Sturgis. He was a Union soldier mm-hmm. in Confederate land, very much so. And you know, it it would be tough to stand and hold. Good sidebar from Sturgis, like you said, Sturgis left what one or two guys, just a couple, yeah, just uh, a couple.
1: There was the laundresses, some of the sick. uh Montgomery, one of the guys, he was the one of the ordnance guys here. Uh, they left behind basically surrendered to basically surrender the fort. Yeah,
0: and then he goes to Fort Gibson, correct? And, yeah,
1: and he. He cuts up, and he ends up in southern Kansas eventually is his direction he's heading.
0: But if I'm not mistaken, he takes over, is it the 7th Cav?
1: He does, yes. Uh, Yeah, uh, we could do a whole podcast on the funny stories connecting (laughs) us to weird places because sidebar, like you said, just a quick little tidbit, he ends up fighting Nathan Bedford Forrest. I'm going to cover this super quick. fights Nathan Bedford Forrest at Bryce's Crossroads, uh, gets the daylights kicked out of him. Uh, then ends up, he's sent out west uh, to fight some of the tribes during the war because it kind of ruins his Civil War career, if you will. And then he <laughs> ends up over the 7th Cavalry. You know, he's a West Pointer. He's a cavalryman. Uh, he ends up over the 7th Cavalry, and he's Custer's boss in 76. Yeah,
0: and, you know, the the thing about it, getting back to Sturgis, he had a son that lived here. That's right. His whole family basically lived yeah. here for the time he spent. Yeah.
1: He showed up in 59, I believe, yeah. is when he started
0: to rise here. Yeah. The story about his son, he got into the powder magazine, powder magazine.
1: blew up 12 pounds of gunpowder, <laughs> which is a lot. We fired <laughs> cannons before, and if you shoot one pound of gunpowder out of our cannon, it'll rock your world. Yeah. Uh, so, I can imagine actually shooting 12 pounds. Well, it, it scarred his face, <laughs> yeah, um, it actually hurt him. And uh, so, of course, being that he's Custer's boss in 1876, his son, who's also in the military now, has a yeah. choice if he can serve anywhere, and why not serve with the very well known Custer. So he is with Custer and Little Bighorn uh bad choice of officers serve under and he is <laughs> killed with Little Bighorn um, and they they never find his body actually um, but they do they do basically lie about it cuz i mean his the, his mom is the general's wife yeah, you know and, it's and the general's he's his mom so he they they lie and say they identified his body by the scar he got on his cheek here for Smith um, but they actually never found his body Well there is a marker for him if you go there now
0: Yeah and in Sturgis, South Dakota, yep. it's named after him. Named after him.
1: Um, he's a he's an interesting character in and of himself, but he was stationed here and he surrenders. Basically, he abandons Fort Smith in sixty one, uh, and and then it's a Confederate fort for the next two years. Now, Fort Smith's going to be a big jumping off point. Like I said, we're going to quickly cover this, but it acts as a big jumping off point for uh, for the uh, Prairie Grove and Pea Ridge campaigns. Oh. Uh, a lot of the troops actually left before that, went up to Wilson's Creek and fought over at Arkansas. Uh, so it's 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 really, in all honesty, Fort Smith a more useful fort for the Confederates than it ever was the Union. Yeah. Um, so by 1863, uh, the Union, even though they won most of those engagements in Northwest Arkansas, like Pea Ridge and Prairie Grove, uh, they never continued their campaign push into the River Valley, uh, not very far, and they never held any ground here anyway. So they did come down to this far south of Van Buren, but but by 63. Union General Blunt's going to go through Indian Territory, come through Honey Springs, win the Battle of Honey Springs, which kind of paves the way to Fort Smith. Uh, Comes over to Fort Smith, and same thing, walks into it. No one here. Uh, General William Cabell was the commanding officer for the Confederates at the time, knew he couldn't hold Fort Smith, and abandons it. Uh, That's when he flees south, and Colonel Cloud uh, is sent to basically fight him and try to kick him out of the area, and he does. Um, So they... they, um, it's kind of a draw, if you will. The back yeah, of the, back,
0: you know, it, it Fort Smith changed hands. It went from Union to Confederate and then back to Union. And
1: and it's going to stay that way the rest of the war. Now, not for lack of trying by the Confederates in 1864, uh, after the failed Camden expedition uh, and, and into southern Arkansas, northern Louisiana, as the Union kind of limps their way back up to Little Rock in this 1864, back to Little Rock and Fort Smith, uh, the Confederates followed them and they then try to retake Fort Smith in 64. So we do have a small engagement here in the middle of the city um, uh, down Towson Avenue, which was unsuccessful. Uh, a small shelling in the fort, also unsuccessful. It was a diversionary tactic on the backside during the same battle. Uh, battle of Fort Smith, this was 1864. And you have the Battle of Mazda Prairie as well in July. And um, which wiped out a couple companies of you know, the six Kansas Cavalry that were stationed outside of Fort Smith. Like I yeah. said, a whole other discussion. From yeah. And
0: we have, you know, I live down Logan County, and we have the Battle of Hagerwood Prairie. Mm-hmm. And it's funny when they talk about this, that battle because you would have Union soldiers that would get injured. Confederates would take care of them. Well, they would join the Confederate forces. And oh, then they'd fight against the Union. So they would flip-flop sides. Oh,
1: yeah. We have several guys here that actually and, – and at that point in the war – a lot of guys, if you know, they're forced into service. You have a lot of conscripted guys that yeah. uh, at the Battle of Devil's Backbone, as an example, at the end of it, you have several hundred men show back up either within the next several days that surrendered to the Union forces that said, we were conscripted, we were forced to service, we never wanted to do this, Yeah. and said, we'll fight for you, and so we'll fight for the Union. And uh, Colonel Cloud commented in his official records that he thought this was great, happy to have him. Uh, he said, but I don't have uniforms for you. So at the Battle of Russellville, or Dardanelle, excuse me, uh, about a week later, he's continuing to fight Cavill and those guys down south. And he said that he had guys in Arkansas, state belt buckles, and, and basically in Butternut and Gray, he said riding his old command. So they were firing in Confederate uniforms, firing on Confederates a yeah. week later, which I don't know of anywhere else in the Civil War that ever happened. And so kind of a neat story there. But there was a lot of guys that – you couldn't just set the war out in this area of the country. You couldn't no. say, I think both sides are wrong. I don't want to be Union. I don't wanna be Confederate. This is not my fight. Yeah, sorry. Yeah,
0: you're uh, not setting this one out. I no. mean everybody's gonna be involved yeah. in it. And,
1: and and that comes back to Fort Smith being taken over by the Union, which really turns this war uh, area into guerrilla warfare and yeah. ruins economic and socially the area. Um and and that gets us to the end of the war. Of course, you know, we think about Lee surrendering in April of sixty five. Well, in the newspapers, they come comment the last of the known bushwhackers, the pro-Confederate guys, don't surrender until August of 65. That's a huge gap. Well,
0: news travels slow, especially you if you're out in the field. Very
1: much so. And, I mean, you don't have the last of the Confederates, the uh, Confederate General stand away to surrender in any territory until uh, June, I think, June 23rd, 1865. Yeah. Uh, so it's months afterwards. But the fight still here. And for those who were refugees that are here in Fort Smith, when there were thousands of them here, the homes had burnt down, they had to leave are now trying to go back and restart, they're having to go back with military escorts because they're still being attacked. Yeah. So the war wasn't over out right here for, for months afterwards. And 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 that kind of leads me to the point too that, you know, we've been talking about Fort Smith in Western Arkansas, but the tribes were involved in this. So imagine, you know, you 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 leave, you're forced out of your home a couple decades later, after surviving the Trail of Tears. You're then thrown upon you the worst war in American history. You're asked to pick sides, and many of which joined the Confederacy because the Confederacy said, hey, join us. We'll give you your own, you know, you'll let you keep your slaves because most of them had, you know, the, each of the tribes had slaves at this point, of the five, 5 quote, unquote, civilized tribes. Then we'll let you have your own country when the war is over. And let's be honest, many of them didn't have a whole lot of love lost for the United States government at this point. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, so they joined up with the Confederacy. Well, picked the wrong side. The the war's over, now they're going to reroute those treaties because these are not U.S. citizens. Let's say that, you know, you and I are soldiers from Arkansas. Yeah. We fight against, for the Confederacy, we fight against the Union. I take my oath of allegiance, I go home, my war's over. No one's yeah. going to punish me. No, no one's going to come burn my home or kill me. I mean, you think about the idea that, you know, this war that, uh, you know, I was not going to be executed at the end of it, which is strange for world history. Um that, but the tribes, these are not american citizens. And so their treaties now are null and void because they took up arms against the U.S. government. So they're going to be punished for this. The whole tribe is. So ruin them economic and social the industrial tears. Make them fight different groups, including each other, in the Civil War. And then punish them afterwards. And what you have then is this perfect storm for crime and disorder that if you had dropped that same storyline into anywhere in the world history, you'd have issues. You'd have social Ooh, yeah. and economic problems. And then many people are surprised by the crime wave and the economic and social upheaval following that the court system for Fort Smith's gonna have to deal with. Well, yeah, it was created by you know, a half a century of failed policy and wars and, and horrible immoral decisions made you know, like I said, involving the Trail of Tears removal
0: process. Well, anything, you know, they always talk about wars coming to an end and everything's great, but you have to think about what happens two, three, four, five years after the war yeah. ends. Yeah, you right. know, they talk about the Civil War ended slavery. Right. But when it did, it made it worse. On the slaves after the war. Oh
1: man, it was. This it, was a very rough time. For yeah, us to you know live the, in. the idea that slavery, quote unquote, was over. Yeah. Maybe may on the books, but if you if you see how many of the slaves were treated following the war, still being forced into labor. Yes. That were forced into labor, um, and then the reconstruction of the South began, which failed miserably. Not yeah. only failed economically but they allowed the takeover politically for some of the people who were very, um, say, uh, anti-black and had been slave owners themselves at one point, then you allowed them the political power again to do what they would, and it failed miserably. And, and really, the, that the government failed many of those who had been slaves in many regards. Um, and, and, and here, interestingly enough, you do have some pretty amazing heroic stories involving uh, African Americans in Fort Smith involved in the Civil War because you do have units that were some freedmen and some slaves that joined up here in Fort Smith uh, in, in the United States color troop units. So they know that they're going to be forced back into slavery or killed yes. under under uh, Confederate law at the time, which was not always followed through on. Uh, but but the threat was there nonetheless and did take place at times, um, and they knew it, and they joined up to fight for their freedom anyway. So I mean, you want to talk about some heroes? Holy cow! Um, but then you end up with uh, um, you end up with several units like the 11th or the 57th who were stationed here. So if you'd visited Fort Smith up until late even 1866 and hit the outposts and the outskirts of town while things were still in a mess, you'd have met United States Color Troop units, yeah. and you'd, you'd have met them and probably with the 57th, and they end up being some of the first ones that are legally married here in town. Which they, remember that was not the case. Yeah. In the case. And they start up and start communities. Uh, schools and churches and homes and they marry and you have descendants to live here in town of them, which is I mean my goodness, what an amazing story involving that. Um, but, but again, as, as far as regionally goes, the, this, the South and this part of the country is an, in absolute chaos. And so the military continues to stay here in Fort Smith until 1871. They've done their job. They're not even really a good supply depot at this point, and so they're going to abandon it. So at this point, though, you have the Western District of Arkansas Court, which had been stationed in Van Buren up to this time, moves over to Fort Smith, and by 1872, they are going to move into these, the abandoned uh, court uh, barracks, well, the enlisted men's barracks. The officers' barracks had burned uh, the following year. Uh, so they moved into the enlisted men's barracks and turned the lower uh, downstairs, which was the mess hall, which is two large open rooms, into the jail, and they turned the upstairs into the courtroom uh, and office space. Uh, so. And that begins the whole second or third, fourth, depending on how you want to look at it, chapters of Fort Smith. Uh, the last chapter, I guess, involving that, um, uh, involved in the court period. Uh, so um, that that goes on from 1872 up until 1896 with the federal court system. Uh, so that's where we get the stories of U.S. marshals and uh, and those who were, you know, the famous stories and kind of. Jumps into True Grit and you know Rooster Cogburn and some of those stories that people are more, may maybe may more familiar with uh, with the Fort Smith stories. Uh, however, you also get Judge Parker and big names like that uh, and lesser known names that are just as much as and important like Anna Dawes or Florence Hammersley. Uh, you have um, you know Heck Thomas and Deputy Marshals and. Uh, Logan roots and the highs and the lows and the guys who come in that like the the first judge and the reason that parkers here is the first judge that comes in is a very corrupt uh, judge story and the, some of the Logan roots and some of the U.S. marshals even that are coming are, are corrupt, including the deputies, and and they're replaced by Judge Parker in seventy five. So there he's a whole other story, which I yeah. think we're going to talk. We're going to talk to we're going to
0: talk about Judge Parker. He
1: deserves his own
0: yeah his we'll own storyline.
1: Um, he is. Or, but but just kind of a quick recap, uh, he does come in 1875 and he stays until 1896, and and during his time here, he's going to see you know low number probably 13,000 cases. Uh, I think our modern historians probably put it much higher. Um, but during his time, and all told, including our stories' time, that you're looking at 86 people being executed here for Smith, uh, and and these are all federal executions, and these are all federal crimes that are taking place. Yeah. So, while a lot of folks are bogged down in, say, some social issues or small stuff or local stuff, this is... Judge Parker and the court system had nothing to do with this part of Arkansas involving local crime. So if you shoot somebody in with Arkansas, that is a state matter. It's not a federal issue. Yeah. So, but if you are a criminal and you commit a crime, uh, say, let's say, DJ, you're Cherokee and I'm Cherokee and you steal my horse, well... Their court systems are going to take care of that. They have their own judges, their own police force, all that nature. But if you're Cherokee and I'm an American, and you steal my horse, or you committed a crime against an American. The U.S. Marshal Service is going to come after you for that, or vice versa. So the tribes could capture you, they could hold you, but they cannot try you. Yeah. And so that and there lies in jurisdiction issues, and um, so the tribes are not happy about. And imagine, let's say you, again, you're Cherokee, and you were. You are accused of committing a crime against an American citizen. you're brought in before the court here. Um, you're not an American citizen, but you're tried by American law, but you're not protected by the Constitution.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of a little touchy subject. Yeah.
1: In, and, and this is the courtroom, and just like today in, in, in 2021, we are as a nation debating what statutes and flags and our historical content means to us. And the courtroom is one of those places because I have folks who come in and say, man, this is law and order and justice. And I have people who come in that are looking at it from the tribal perspective like this is tyranny. Yeah. This is oppression. And you know what? What's amazing, I get to work at a place where it can be both. We can talk about it and you can see that there, man, there are some good things done out of here. And then you can see and you're like... Wow, that wasn't too hot. That wasn't smart. This idea. didn't work, and this was wrong. And there's things that were good and bad about this. And what can we take from it? Yeah. And and so that's where I'll kind of end on my on that because the court system uh, is ordered basically in 1896 to be shut down as far as the Western District to have jurisdiction over any territory. Uh, that's in September 1st 1896. Um, Parker dies. Uh, spoiler alert uh, I don't know uh, in November of 1896 just a couple months after that and and it's really the kind of ending of an era in many regards I mean look at where we've come from we start with 1760's Cherokee and Osage fighting to the US military coming not until 1817 to giant wars fought over this land to to the Indian wars which is a I mean, you can include up to the turn of the century, even, you know, with different tribes in the Southwest uh, that are then removed to Indian territory that th- this court system would have jurisdiction over some of those things as far as federal crimes went. Um, you have the civil war. I mean, in, I mean, you go from people fighting with flintlocks to gas lights and automobiles. Yeah. And it
0: just less than 125 years.
1: Right. And you know, it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson was once quoted as saying he thought it would take a thousand years to conquer the North American continent. Yeah, I mean it took a couple hundred. He was way off. Now you got to look at that fact that he is classically educated, and yeah, it took Europe a long time to be conquered. If you look go back from the Romans on. Yes. But but then look at um, but then look at and I use that word conquered lightly. I'm not saying it's a good thing. Um, but at the same time, look at American history and how fast things were. And how Fort Smith played such a vital role in one of those big stair steps to the West for right and wrong. Like I said the very first, it's a complicated story. We have, you know, good stuff. Do I think there's heroes in this lot? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, do I think there's villains? Absolutely. Do I think that there's stuff that you can learn from Fort Smith that is that is horrible and I can look at it and say, Man, we shouldn't do that ever again. Yeah. And then you look at things and say, Oh, Man,
0: that was a good idea. That was a good idea. Yeah. Let's
1: do that. And therein lies the issue. This is a national park site, and we have hundreds of thousands of human stories here. And, yeah, we may have technology. Here we are recording this on a podcast, you know, on a computer uh, and talking to mics. Um, but as 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 far as humans go, man, we, we're the same. We no. always have been. And we make the same mistakes. And we sometimes make the same successes. And that's where we can look back at this history lesson of Fort Smith, which includes so many thousands of historical lessons and moral and ethical lessons. And we're full of them. So Fort Smith, and no matter where, where you end up going with this on your podcast, there are so many amazing stories. I think the best way I heard this, and it was a long ago, somebody said Fort Smith is the Star Wars world uh, <laughs> of, of the old west. Uh, that it's the Star Wars universe that you can just go in a million different directions with
0: yeah. it. Depending um, on what time peri- period you wanted to look at, yeah, that's bet. what you could do.
1: And, and there are so many neat things, and there's so many directions you can go with. And so what we just talked about today was the briefest of our reviews. Oh,
0: we, um, just, we just skimmed the surface. Uh, yeah,
1: barely. I mean, like, this wasn't even enough of the uh, the iceberg to sink the Titanic. Um, so I'm <laughs> uh, just barely touching it.
0: Yeah, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, we're going to sit down and kind of dive a little bit deeper into Judge Parker. How he came about to be at Fort Smith, some of the the more famous trials he uh, presided over, and then what ended up actually killing Judge Parker and being the end of his, I guess, his reign here at Fort Smith. So stick around. We'll be right back. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Fort Smith Museum of History, located at 320 Rogers Avenue in Fort Smith. The museum is devoted to preserving the history of Fort Smith and the surrounding area. The museum is open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And for more information, call 479-783-7841, or you can visit them online at fortsmithmuseum.org. So, welcome back to the podcast. We took a small break. Uh, before the break, we were speaking to Cody Faber, who is a historical interpreter at uh, Fort Smith National Historic Site, and uh, I'll let him recap on what we talked about.
1: Yeah. So, so kind of what we—if you're just tuning in and uh, you want to know kind of what we basically talked about—we uh, had—we were kind of doing an overview on the on the site's history. Uh, we're gonna jump in now. Uh, to talk about Judge Parker and and kind of focus on him but if you're just tuning in and and just kind of get us up to Parker and kind of understand a little about the setting that he's in rather than just saying hey he's Judge Parker well why do you have Judge Parker here I mean if you don't understand that you know we have federal land policy here you have the forts and the court systems needed following the Civil War it's kind of difficult to understand why his job is so important and why he's here in the first place so let's kind of do just a quick recap so our story mainly starts in 1817 when the US government sends the uh, US military to uh, try to keep the peace between the O'S and the Cherokee and so the first Fort Smith is built from 1817 to 1824 and then they come back and start building the second Fort Smith in the 1830s uh, following the Indian Removal Act uh, under under President Andrew Jackson which starts the Trail Tears and so as that's taking place uh, internationally um, the, the war with Mexico takes place which Fort Smith uh, the second Fort Smith's being built around that time and actually finished by 1846, so Fort Smith is a big jumping off point for the Mexican War, and then, <clears throat> then also a big jumping off point for the California Gold Rush. And then by 1860s, though, you have the, in, the you have the Civil War, of course, by 61 to 65. And Fort Smith actually swaps hands; it starts as a Confederate for the first two years of the war, and then finishes as Union for the last two years of the war. And so, by 1871, the military's pretty much done its job. They've, they've left Fort Smith, they've abandoned it. Um, and the following year, the federal court system moves in. And their job is to deal with the now massive amount of crime that is taking place following, you know, the Trail Tears, the social and economic issues that follow that involved with, uh, you know, the, the Civil War. You can throw on top of that, like throwing napalm on top of a gasoline fire already. And then you have this enormous crime wave. Uh, that sweeps Indian territory uh, that that is there is a need now to deal with the federal crimes that are taking place so the this let's say that we're Cherokee and the Cherokee you know have a, a well someone steals someone else's horse uh, they're gonna deal with that they have their own the light horse Indian police they're gonna deal with that they have their own justice system their own court systems we're gonna deal with that but if you <laughs> If you commit a crime, you're an American citizen, it has to, which is an enormous amount of criminals and an enormous amount of crimes take place inside of Indian Territory. Who's going to deal with that? Well, that's where the Western District of Arkansas Court comes in. That's where Judge Parker comes in by seventy-five. Um, so, uh, so uh, did you have any questions for me at the start before we jump into that? No.
0: Let's jump in. Let's jump into Judge Parker. Uh,
1: so that kind of sets us up the stage. I mean, you're following the Civil War, lots of crime fall in the Indian Territory and then a lot of people think we jump right into Judge Parker. So, but from 70, uh, for the first couple of years, from 72 up until 1875, when Parker does come, you're dealing with a very corrupt court. So Judge Williams' story was the, 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 the judge that was here before Parker. Um, he was basically forced to resign. Uh, Logan Roots, which was the U.S. Marshal at the time, was pretty much the same way, and so did a lot of deputies followed him. This court was known as being very corrupt and costing lo- hundreds of thousands of dollars of money to run, which they had a hard time accounting for. They were investigated for this several times, and they were kind of weighed and found wanting. Uh, so they were, they were pushed out for this. And so there was a vacancy, if you will, for a judge to come in. Um, and there we get to Judge Parker. Now, most of you are listening will probably recognize the name Judge Parker as the hanging judge, or from True Grit, or from Hang 'Em High with the Clint Eastwood movie and stuff like that. DJ and I can debate about <laughs> John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. All John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and, and Jeff Bridges. Know, Jeff Bridges. Uh, but but I think understanding it, it, you know, Parker is one of those misunderstood characters in a lot of ways. He's also one of those divisive characters in some aspects. At the same time. I think it's as much what we talk about as much as him is proving what he wasn't, is talking about what he was, um, you know. Because again, what we call Judge Parker the Hanging
0: Judge. Well, and uh, and there's not a lot of judges talked about in history. I think the only other okay. judge in history was one that was out west and
1: Judge Roy Bean. You know, yeah. On text yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of people get them confused. I've had people at the park come up and talk to me, and they're like, oh, yeah, don't you mean George Roy Bean? Is this where he was out of? And I'm like, get out of here. (laughs) No, I'm I'm joking. Um, But uh, at the same time, you know, here he is. uh, He comes in, and you're right. He's very well known after all these years. How many judges really are known in the United States? He's one of the few that if you dabble in Western history, you've heard a judge. You've heard a judge. If you watch True Grit, you've watched Hangman High or read the book True Grit you know or things of that nature or even I think they even might even hit on Fort Smith and some of that in the western uh, stuff with uh, Lonesome Dove and stuff like that Uh, but he is he's one of those characters that uh, like I said is highly misunderstood um, you know I've, I've I've worked at the park for 13 years, and I've heard people say, "Well, I've heard he hung little kids for still in bread," <laughs> and he, you know, he watched all the executions, he gave the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. He like, did the thing, gladiator. Yeah like, he's, yeah, like gladiator, like he's some Roman emperor, and you're like, ah, oh, there's so many things about him uh, that that I think people will be surprised that he's anti-death penalty. Oh yeah, he's, he's pro women suffrage. He's pro African American, Native American suffrage, and if you look at his rulings. He's kind of left wing as far as, uh, and even put him in the left wing, anyways. As far as anti gun, I mean, and I'll talk about that here in a bit, and um, some of his findings and, and some of his decisions. But people come, some people come visiting the park and love him, and end up leaving disliking him. Yeah. And I have people who come hating him, thinking, "Oh man, he's pro capital punishment. He's the hanging judge." And go and read stuff and go, "Oh, well, man, that's neat. I like him now because of this." Yeah. And then what you end up with uh, at the end, just like any character in history, is you go and we are allowed to go say, hey, I like that about him. I dislike this about him. He was a flawed person. He was a hero on this part. Some people think he's a villain over here on this other part. And what do we each think individually? And we get to go through that. So let's talk about that. Let's kind of dive into him just real quick. So, So again, he's coming into a very tumultuous time, American history. But to back up on him... He is. He's from Ohio. He's born in Ohio, uh, so that was technically, uh, um, you know, I guess his home if you want to go with that. Um, now he does move, and I think if you look at it, he considers Missouri more his home than Ohio, because uh, that's where he spent a lot of his time and early career. His love with his wife. He has his kids there, uh, so he, he moves to Saint Joseph, old Saint Joe, right before the Civil War. Uh, he comes in there and marries Mary O'Toole, um, a good Irish Catholic, which will come into later in life with him. Uh, apparently, he had, I think, converted uh, later in life. But he has two boys, Charles and James. Uh, now, this is right at the beginning of the Civil War. So, 1861, uh, he, he marries, and, and then 1862, he's starting a law firm. And so, he's a lawyer. He comes in. He's, he's interested in law. He reads the law. Uh, and then he comes in, and he comes in in April 61, right there being in the Civil War, as actually, believe it or not, a Democrat, uh, which is, is there's going to be some changes uh, going on there, but he comes as a Democrat as a city attorney for St. Joseph and serves a couple terms there. Of course, the Civil War is going on at the same time and then he actually joins up during that time he joins up uh with a pro-union militia unit uh during that time so with the 64 for 61st missouri uh, emergency regiment and he ends up making corporal by the end of the war uh, he never sees combat to, to my knowledge uh during during this time he also as is common with many folks in law they end up running for public office and so he ends up going into political stuff. He does run, uh, he switches parties, and he becomes Republican. Uh, and he does run for a county prosecutor during that time. Uh, and he's also, it's kind of neat, and by 64, 1864, he's serving as on the Electoral College, and he voted for the re-election of Abraham Lincoln, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and so uh, and later on, by 1868, Parker won a six-year term as a judge with the 12th Missouri Circuit. And and then later, by eighteen uh, seventy, uh, he's still there, uh, still working with the Republican Party. Uh, but at, at, you got to think at this point, um, things are changing, right? By, by by then, there's a big push. To, uh, not everybody's being favored in the Republican Party in certain areas of the country. At this so
0: point. you said he got a six-year term. Yes. Where would he be based out of?
1: That's a good question. Um, I guess at that point, he's still up in Missouri. I know he might be at St. Joseph. I'll have to. By would it be now? St.
0: Joseph or would it be around the Kansas City area? Oh,
1: man, that's a good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that. I don't. don't that would be, be a good follow-up. Yeah, up. We can, I, can, I can try to find that and add that to another one. Because I'm curious if he stayed there the entire time. Now, he also ends up serving, was elected as a Republican, uh, with the House of Representatives. Uh, so for the 32nd and the 43rd United States Congress, he's there uh, serving up until 1875 um, uh, with, in, in Congress. Uh, so his uh, his second term, and this is interesting, I think what might have put him on the radar nationally, is during his second term he really concentrated and did a lot of talking about Indian policy and, and trying to deal with the fair treatment of the tribes that are evolving in territory. And some of his speeches, actually, uh, in support of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, gains national attention at that point, which is interesting, and which I, I think is odd considering what he's going to be doing If if he
0: if he knew his future, he might
1: exactly that he was going to be working with the tribes later on. So of course, uh, Grant is is president at this point. He comes in, and there's a whole other story about Grant and his presidency. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to argue his merits as a politician. Uh, (laughs) He was, like I said, way better, perhaps, blowing up the bridges than keeping the trains on time, um, uh, as far as uh, the politics went, and just laden sadly with a uh, with rife with corruption during his, his tenure however uh he uh judge story again is appointed and judge story resigns and it's during that time that parker then is chosen and he did offer him a position actually out in utah which utah is still a territory at that time yeah. and um you know there's there's arguments well that that might have been the reason he didn't choose it um the also at that time you got to think that uh the the church there, the Mormon church, does not always have the best reputation you know, and vice versa with the U.S. government. And them. I'm not saying it was their fault. But at the same time, their, their working with the U.S. government was uh, strenuous at best. And that might have been a decision that he going out there and not have to deal with that issue. Uh, but then also, you think about Fort Smith, Arkansas, uh, he requested this site. It's close to home. If Missouri's oh, yeah. home, he's not very far from Missouri. And so he he asked for that, and he's, and he's finally appointed there. Uh, uh by by Ulysses Grant himself. And so he arrives, you gotta think about what people might have thought when he arrived down here. I mean he's replacing a corrupt judge. They don't know if he's corrupt or not. He's he was a union soldier, he's a politician and he's,
0: and he's Republican. a lawyer
1: and he's yeah and he's Republican. <laughs> so I'm sure some folks may arrive us thinking, well, man, who have we got coming down here doing this? So he arrived in Fort Smith on May, may 4th 1875. And he would have got off, even though Fort Smith's a rough town in some regards. Fort Smith, far as the region goes, is a very metropolitan area in, that, in, in the case of cities. Um, and he initially arrived without his family, which they're going to come later. Uh, but he gets here, and so he arrives on May 4th, and then he starts actually his first session of May 10th. So you're going to talk about hitting your ground running. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he gets in here, and he starts immediately uh, uh, working uh, with the the court prosecutor at the time was William Henry Harrison Clayton which the Clayton home if you visit Fort Smith is, is a is a wonderful Victorian mansion to go visit uh, shameless plug for them go see their site it's an awesome uh, historic home that you can go visit uh, run by some wonderful people um, but but he has a big job I mean he's cor- he, he's replacing corrupt judge and in, in, in working with a now resigned uh, you know the, the, the like I said the US Marshal had resigned they're work with new new folks and so he starts in May, and the first 18, he tried 18 men during his first session uh, that were uh, that actually revolving death sentences. Uh, eight, eight of those uh, were ordered to have death penalties. Uh,
0: which is so, so his first day on the job, he saw He's, 18 he, well, his cases? First,
1: Parker tried in May, excuse me, in May during that time period, his first session, 18 men of whom were charged with murder. So that's his first session, and 18 of them are charged with murder. Uh, 15 of them were convicted. So all 15 of those. Of those, eight are actually sentenced. One got commuted to life in prison, and one died in in jail under an escape attempt. So six of them um, uh, are actually going to go to the gallows. His first session, six of them end up on the gallows. Um, That is Edmund Campbell, uh, Daniel Evans... Smoker, Man Killer, Samuel Fowey, uh, um, uh, James Moore, and William Whittington. That's three white guys, uh, two uh, one Choctaw, one Cherokee, and one African-American. Yeah. Um, and, and I only mention that to say, look at the different mix of people who are committing crimes. Many people have the sad idea that, oh, it's in any territory. It must be in all the Native Americans. That's a bit no. That's not true. Or it was just... Say American citizens that were committing crimes. Well, no. If, again, if it involved an American citizen that the crime was committed against, they'd come back through here. And that was, so all six of these guys uh, were allowed to say their final words. And Edmund Campbell, African American, and I believe it was Smoker Man Killer, who was Choctaw, uh, or the Cherokee, excuse me, said on the stand, they're all on there, that they thought that it was racism that got them convicted, which is interesting. So, and that's a, that's a common cry throughout the next couple decades, you know, that who did that. And, and, and so if you look at the full breakdown it was about 30 a little over the, the highest percentage was Native American that was executed and it's only the 30 percent range right behind them, just a little bit yeah. white and then black so so the breakdown uh, pretty pretty spread out in all honesty um, you know uh, I'm not I'm not saying that might not have been the case but if you look at the overall breakdown I, I personally don't see any evidence of it but that's that's my perspective you that yeah. what it's worth Um. And and because I've 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 gone over all the cases and uh, sooner or later I've gone through read 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 all the trials and it was a interesting mix. Um, Now, do I think that everybody that ended up on the gallows probably should have been there Uh, under modern times? Probably not. I think a lot of these guys would got life in prison or tried by manslaughter. Well,
0: and you think about it, Tate. You know, we've redone some of his court cases, Mm -hmm. and our jury is handpicked from the audience, Mm -hmm. which consisted of twelve people, Mm -hmm. men. Women and children. Or I say children, anybody sixteen and older. Right. You know, back in Judge Parker's days, it was twelve white men yes. on a yeah. jury.
1: Yeah. Post post when when the uh when the Jim Crow laws hit the South, yeah, all white guys. Early on you'd have seen a mix, but later on yeah. white men. Yes. Men. So imagine being a Cherokee female. And the United States constitution promises a jury of your peers. Well then, you're sitting there looking at the room. People that don't look like you, that aren't your same gender, that aren't that you know, aren't your culture, that may not even speak your same language, and you're yeah. not even protecting the constitutional law. There's there's some issues there, and 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 I think there's some problems. And again, you know, that's one of the reasons they broke things down, and we're still improving our justice system um, uh, to better represent folks and to be more honest and fair.
0: So he started in '75, correct? Correct. Yeah. And his first now, what would you refer to as a session?
1: Uh, first, th- th- that would have been that their allotment of money they would have got. They okay. worked on that. Um, the government just like nowadays have fiscal years, and okay. they would have got their allotment of money in which they ran out several hundred thousand dollars, which they were investigated several times because they thought they were wasting money, and they were actually investigated. And the, uh, the uh, those from Washington showed up, looked into the books. They're like, nope,
0: everything's You guys good. just got
1: a large load. Now again, he's going to be here till ninety six, and a lot, and I'll kind of go back to that. But just an overall view. The low number is probably around 13,000 cases that he tries. Uh, our modern historians, Lauren uh, McLean over here, one of the other Rangers, probably puts that closer to 20,000. Now, that's a lot of trials. Yeah. That's on average two to four a day you're getting pumped out of here. That is fast. Yeah. Um, and the idea, too, that the, you know, here's a guy who wanted to execute everybody and killed that and is, get wrong. Um, or the fact that they found you guilty, they just took you right out back and hung you. That's also <laughs> wrong. That, I hear that all the time. Yeah. And and. Typically, um, you would go four to six months and be executed. Uh, now, let's say that you're you're guilty or you're uh, you're, you're convicted of guilt, anyways, um, and you're you're convicted of that. Judge Parker would then set your date. He's, uh, you know, if you've seen the True Grit movie or watched the book or watched read the book, um, that you have Judge Parker, or Charles Porter, great book, great story. But Portis has Parker watching the executions. Yeah, oh, he never Sit, did that. Sitting in a perch position, overlooked. That's never yeah. Happened. Um, but he did set the date. He read off the death penalty, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But if you're convicted of murder or rape in this time period, it's a mandatory death sentence. The judge has absolutely no saying the no matter whatsoever. Yeah,
0: so it was pretty much out of his hands you from a higher you. level.
1: So his one of my favorite quotes is that I, I never hung a man, it was the law. And he's right. And here's a guy, again, who thinks, well, man, 86 people were executed here, 79 during his tenure alone. 79 guys, he must have been bloodthirsty. Well, no. But at the time, again, American history, you're... If you're convicted, mandatory dissonance, a judge has no say in it. So he's simply laying down that law. Now, he ends up... uh, um, um, He did... Before 1889, there was no appeals process except to the president. After that, you could appeal to the Supreme Court. And you end up seeing a lot of his uh, convictions turned over. And I said a lot of his convictions. A lot of the prosecution's convictions turned over. Uh, Parker had a bad problem... And the, the Supreme Court said this of leading the jury that he would surmise to the jury and give them instructions that would last hours. You can't do that. That's not yeah. Okay. And so um, that that at the time they would go out. What do you know? They come out with a guilty verdict. Well, and during his time too, one of the jury instructions, for example, is something that we're coming up with now and we deal with now if we talk about a long longevity of of something that have, that we're still talking about is the standard ground laws. Um, we've had that here that in the last few years about some shootings had taken place I, I, I sat like to so the Zimmerman shooting that took place in Florida several years yeah. ago and they quoted that you know he had no duty to retreat okay so that's first heard here in this court where a man shot this guy he he was in his home and Parker said he should have retreated he had a duty to retreat and leave and that went to the Supreme Court Supreme Court said no he did not he had no duty to retreat and that first and basically overturned one of his you know his rulings, and it ends up that that is cited then, and we're still citing it now, no, against him. Another one is the uh, dynamite charge, um, uh, which is I'm trying. I'll think of it later. Again, maybe if we do this, I can list out some of the things I forget. Because I uh, apologize for those who listen to me. I, I, I deal with so much history at times that I forget little certain tidbits. So please excuse me. Um, uh, but that that he, the jury had come back in and was hung. They were they couldn't make a decision. He was, yep. no, you will go back out and you will come back with it. And and that, which is a major win for the prosecution because more than likely they're going to vote guilty. Just, just end it. And the, the defense appealed and the Supreme Court said, no, that was okay. He can do that. He can yeah.
0: make you come that. You know, that. And, and I say 75% of our night court reenactments, it's we always shirt. come back with a hung jury. They Allen charge. That's it is him. very rare that we come back with yeah. A guilty or not that's, guilty, a hundred percent. You
1: bet you. So he, he. Th- so there are some long lasting things that he had put through, but the fact that he's dealing with crime instead of some social issues, to say that Western Arkansas, most his stuff is crime taking place inside Indian territory. Plus, you know, it's it's his say up to the president before eighteen ninety. That's very that's almost unheard of, and uh, the amount of cases coming through is unheard of. Uh, and, and then the amount of executions is unheard of. He, well, you know he he has an interesting uh, um, um, the fact that he is he's over all these cases. And again, people think, again, hanging judge, right? You're looking at seventy nine people. Let's say it's a low number, of thirteen thousand. Yeah. thirteen thousand cases, seventy nine executions. That's yeah. only one percent. And that's so low, it's ridiculous. And he comes out and says he's anti-death penalty. He said, his quote was, that I never, uh, or that it's, it's not about the, the severity of punishment, it's about the certainty of punishment. In other words, I'm anti-death penalty, but if you do something wrong, you will be punished. And so, you know, anyways, but th- but he didn't want to see them killed. That was his personal belief. Yeah. Um, and now, he still had to do that. It was his job, you know, since the day. Now, is he out there pulling the lever? Absolutely not. Um, but that's the story uh, that many have propagated for many years. But, however, here he is, the end of his time, you know, he's seen some massive cases, some very serious things. Like I said, they're long-lasting. You've got a lot of murder cases that are involved with this. During said, 79 people. You've got some very big names in there. I mean, you've got the Rufus Buck Gangs executed under his time here. You've got Cherokee Bill being yeah, executed under his time Yeah,
0: him. and you have Cherokee Bill, the Rufus Buck Gang. I mean, you have so many that come yes. through. Bell Starr and Frank oh, yeah. and, and that whole group that he um, been over
1: and met some of the most interesting characters in this part. I mean, he would have known Bass Reeves, he would have known Heck Thomas, he would have known Heck Brewer and some amazing deputies and he would have known, uh, you know, uh, like I said, he had uh, Florence Hammersley and some of the ladies that worked in the court system. Um, and, and, and let me side note, after that, his own wife was one of these amazing characters. Because his life outside of the courtroom is also interesting, too. The fact that, that his wife and him are some of the ones who got some of the, uh, the Fortnite in the club going that ended up being the first Fort Smith Public Library. Uh, they worked on the board that got the first hospital built here. Uh, you know, he's, he's involved with the community, and he's, I think he's well-respected in the community. I mean, you remember, when he showed up, bad time in American history in this part of the world, And what people might or might not have thought about him when he first arrives. You know, people I was sure would have yelled carpetbagger at him walking down the street.
0: Well, Uh, he got dropped into a bad situation. Yeah. You know, they basically dropped him in and said, fix it. Yeah. And do whatever you can to fix it. You know, and and the people he wouldn't send to be executed, Mm -hmm. he would send to Detroit.
1: Yeah, that's right. His work in reform is pretty interesting, too. That he did have a say in where some of these guys. So, if you serve a person's sentence longer than a year, you would go to a federal penitentiary. Where it's less than a year, you say here for Fort Smith. Uh, but he would send guys, and he preferred to send them places like Detroit, like mentioned, that has reform uh, uh, programs for them. Because the idea was, you know, he wanted to get the back of their feet, be productive citizens, go back into it. So, that was interesting. A lot of, I mean, again, at the time, some of those things like reform, for the most part, or women's suffrage or African-American suffrage Native American suffrage, that's moot points now. No one's going to argue against that. But the time, that was very progressive. I mean, some of those things like after-cabin punishment or anti-gun would put him in left wing now, typically. Not always, yeah. but typically. Let's let's be honest. From where our politics go, typically in left field. But the time, whoa, he's very out there and very progressive. So very interesting. Like I said, a lot of people come like, oh, man, you know, if we go back to hanging people, we'd change that. I hear that all the time. <laughs> and and then, you know, and then and then I have people who come to the gallows who protest at our gallows because it's a negative symbol of capital punishment. That's a hot-button topic today, and he's kind of at the center of that. You know, and, and so he ends up, kind of to sum things up here in the end, he ends up uh, the last few years, he's in his new courtroom, he's – Getting several of these things overturned, he's in a constant arguments in the Supreme Court. He's also not doing well health wise.
0: Yeah, and you can see that from the pictures because when oh, he yes. shows up, dark headed, has all of his hair yep. full goatee, yep. ready to go. And by the end of his uh, time in Fort Smith, and as being a judge, it is really taking his toll on him. Oh yes, very Cause, much so. Because what are you talking seventy five to what? Seven till 96, so 24 so, years there. So 24 years and 20, say at a, at a low number, 14,000 cases?
1: Right, 21 years, I said 24. 41. Yeah,
0: but still, that's, that's a, lot. a lot.
1: Yeah, he that is an enormous amount of time. And the fact that he's dying, he's got Bright's disease, which is kidney failure. Um, he is not doing well, and you're right, if you look at the photograph of him, vibrant young man when he comes here, probably that the most common ones are probably in the early 70s, late 60s, when that uh, painting's done or pictures are taken. And, uh, and then by the time he leaves here, probably a year or two before he's passing, he's got white hair, bleach white. If oh, you yeah. ask somebody how old they think he looks, he looks like he's in his 70s or 80s. And, and not trying to pick on it, he looks overweight, but he's not. He's got Bright's disease, which is kidney failure, and makes him retain water. He's got water weight. He's not doing well. So And the court system is being broken up at this point. So September 1st. Is when the court system pretty much draws a conclusion here, which he had shut the court system down for a little bit there for his health reasons. He had to stay home, um, and by by November, um, by November, um, he actually passes away uh, in 1896 of Bright's disease. Um, but kind of like what we were talking before, you know, it's the end of an era. You know, he's coming to an end of a time here. Where I mean, he'd done his job. You know, and uh, and and it's interesting to see he's interviewed by his. Uh, a, a newspaper reporter out of St. Louis at the time, uh, and he comments about his time here, and he basically says, you know, he only intended on staying a couple years here and getting things started. And there's a story about his wife said it's the worst decision he's ever made by staying and, and, and staying. And I and I don't, I don't think that was that they didn't think he did a successful job. I think she's talking about here's her husband who's dying in front of her. Yeah, you know, who's who's doing this, and and it did cost him. Look at what it did to his health. I mean, look at the president. We see pictures of the president after eight years in office. Look yeah. at the You
0: get you could tell the the wear and tear, you know, eight years in office, they're a completely oh, yeah. different person That's than when right. they first stepped imagine in. Imagine
1: twenty one with yeah. probably more work than any president's ever done ever. Well and he's and done and he's and it's and it's it's hurting. It's killing And
0: him. anybody who's grown up in Arkansas knows the Arkansas summers are not the easiest. It's brutal, you bet. Yeah. And the winters are I'm sure they had plenty of heat, but they didn't have but plenty still, of cool air.
1: You betcha. And this is he is a rougher time, and the fact that, I mean, so he dies at the ripe old age of 57 years old. I mean, that's nothing, or 58, I think. I, I 57 remember. or 58. I um, mean, he doesn't
0: even hit 60 no, yet. He, so should, a he doesn't even man. hit the retirement age. And, and you
1: betcha. I mean, and, and so this, you know, and, and whether you like him or not, i got to say, after all the years of study, I've never seen him anybody accuse him of corruption. And, and so here's a guy who comes in, very hard job, and we may disagree with some of it, and some people might disagree with his politics or on some of his decisions. But he did his job, and I got to say, he's one of the high points of the story in some cases. Because imagine if he had been corrupt. Imagine if he had ruined the court system for a second time, and and it did cost him a lot. I honestly think, but whether we disagree with him or agree with him, that he thought he was doing right. I mean, you see that in some of his decisions. You see that in some of his arguments. And what's interesting is you know I think about that. That Edmund Burke quote, that old philosopher who once wrote that all it takes for evil to exist is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And, and you have people like Parker and some of the deputy marshals and, and some of the court officials and, and individuals inside Indian territory that are family members and people that are the light horse. The, just the, the homes, and the farms, the common people that are trying to rebuild over what the government and governments had shattered over the last two centuries. And and they're rebuilding this, and he's one of those stories that end up putting a lot of emphasis on us that really, I would argue, that because of his life and tenure here ends up being one of the main reasons that it gets attention and gets us really national attention and to the point of even being a national park.
0: I think so, too, because I think the corruption put it at one level, and then by the time Parker comes in and fixes everything. Yeah. He couldn't have fixed it in 5 years. Oh no. He would have had to go in and yeah. really work at. it. So his 21 years here, he had to fix it mm-hmm. and it took it's it took its wear and tear on him. Know so. yeah. You know, but at hit seeing that too at his right hand, he had the US Marshals. Right. which would go out into the Indian territory and pick right. up any uh writs that were, you know. Right. So he did have help. Yes, you know. Yeah,
1: he said he couldn't run the court a single day without the deputies, and he's right. And and, and like I said, it, it, there's there's a lot to this story, and I'm sure we'll flesh this out another uh, other other uh, podcast. But um, I'll end with this. Uh, I, I stole this directly from our website, but it, but it's that's why I'm not going to take credit for it. But I think it's perfect, a good way to ending this and kind of sum him up. Um, or it's just sensational cases and mass executions overshadowed Parker's contributions in rehabilitating offenders, reforming the criminal justice system, and advocating the rights of Indian nations. In Fort Smith, he tried to create, in his own words, the moral force of a strong federal court. Remembered in Western novels and films as a hanging judge, Isaac Parker's real career and accomplishments in Fort Smith are far more fascinating and complicated. I love
0: that. It's amazing. You know, So that's going to wrap up our podcast. Today we talked about Fort Smith. We talked about Judge Parker. I want to thank Cody for coming out and taking up time from the historic site and his job. If you have questions or you want to see history in Fort Smith, come down to the National Historic Site. Come to the Museum of History. There is so much more to the history of Fort Smith, and we are just beginning to scratch the surface. So once again, thank you, Cody, for coming out. You bet. And we'll see everybody next time. I want to thank Cody Faber for joining us on the podcast today. I also want to thank the Fort Smith Museum of History for letting us record in their sound studio. They are open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and you can find them online at fortsmithmuseum.org.